I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And I am so excited for this episode because it's my friend Stephen Hyden's personal Super Bowl. Uh, He's been preparing for this one for 25 years. Today, we are diving into Oasis versus Blur, the battle of Britpop. Stephen has extremely strong feelings on this, as it will soon become apparent. Yes, when I wrote my book about music rivalries, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, a few years ago, I wrote the first chapter on this rivalry because it was one of the first rivalries that I personally ever cared about. It's what taught me how to hate Jordan. And (laughs) I have to say that it's awfully hard to let go of how I felt when I was 16 years old, which is that Oasis is great and brilliant and one of the best bands ever, and Blur sucks really, really hard. I have to say, when you were 16, I would have been, I think, about six in 1995. I knew nothing about the famous Oasis versus Blur chart face-off that was taking place at that time. To me, the winner was abundantly clear. Oasis was the Wonderwall band. You know, everybody, that song was everywhere. If I'd heard of Blur at all at that time, it would have been as like a tween watching MTV2 and seeing the video for song number two or something, which... To me, sounded like something like Blink-182 or Green Day. You know, I had no idea that Blur were Britpop forefathers, probably until their Best Of album came out in 2000, I think, which is sort of like the Louder Than Bombs for My Age demo. Like, that was what all the cool record stores in, our, in town had, like, posters of. But even then, I had no knowledge of this blood feud with Oasis until learning more about the history of Britpop. And to me, without knowing the British cultural implications... They seem to come from completely different musical universes, Oasis and Blur. Yeah, this is like one of those episodes where I I feel like the old man pulling up his rocking chair (laughs) and explaining to the young people 
what it felt like to live in a war? Because you can read about it in textbooks, Sonny, but you don't know what it was like to be in the trenches, buying import singles for precious Oasis B-sides and taking your marching orders from Noel Gallagher about the evils of Damon Alburn. I think I have to break this down for you and all the other kiddies out there, so let's get into this mess. We have to start, unfortunately, Stephen, with Blur. They were the first earlier band. They were formed while the members were attending college in London in 1989, and they initially wanted to call themselves Seymour after a J.D. Salinger novella. Uh, and I feel like right there, that's a pretty good indicator of how different Blur are than Oasis. Yeah, uh, I, I wonder like if the Gallagher yeah. brothers have read any J.D. Salinger. I'm guessing probably not. <laughs> I mean, it struck me as more of a Faulkner band, to be honest. <laughs> Blur released their debut, Leisure, two years later after they formed in 1991. And a two-month tour of the United States in 1993 would prove to be really instrumental for the band because they were homesick and they were starting to sort of tweak their sound as a reaction against this American grunge scene that sort of pelted them when they were touring across the country. And they embraced their own cultural identity and the homegrown sounds of England, like the Rolling Stones, Who, the Kinks, bands like The Clash, and more modern groups like The Specials and The Smiths and Madness. And this sowed the seeds of Britpop, which was, you know, admittedly more of like a, a headline hype kind of thing than a genuine musical movement. But it did have a distinctive sound with its mix of pop melodies and rock and roll swagger. Yeah, you know, I feel like I have to say this before we get too far into this episode that, you know, I have to come clean and say that I don't actually think Blur sucks. You know, I respect their career and legacy, and I think I can analyze it without letting my intense pro-Oasis biases get in the way. So I'll just put that out there. If there's any Blur fans out there who are already turning off this episode because they feel like this will not be a fair and balanced episode of Rivals, I am promising that I can do that. I think the Britishness of Blur is what really ties them to bands like you were saying, like the Kinks and the Smiths. Like when you listen to their records, especially the ones that they made at their creative peak in the mid-90s, you get a real sense of what it was like to live in England, I think, at that time. Like there's a specificity to Blur lyrically that really sets them apart as cultural commentators. And really, like on some level, like they're like satirists, I think, in a lot of ways. Oasis doesn't have that at all. Like <laughs> lyrically... They're basically focused on things like cigarettes and alcohol and rock and roll and all that <laughs> cool guy stuff, the culture around bands, basically. So in a way, I think like Blur is probably stronger when it comes to lyrics, though I think the generality of Oasis is what allowed them to transition better to the American market. And I also think it makes Oasis's songs more timeless. Like you listen to Blur, and it seems very 90s to me, whereas Oasis has a timelessness where if you just like good time rock and roll, Oasis delivers in spades. Blur reached peak Britishness, I'd have to say, in 1994 when they released their third album, their masterpiece, really, Park Life. Uh, and it's written from the perspective of the British working class. And the uh, music video for the title track even had Phil Daniels, who played Jimmy the Maud in the 1979 film Quadrophenia based on, on the Who album, so, I mean, you know, you don't get much more British than Jimmy the Mod here. This album was an absolute smash, hitting number one for nine weeks in the UK, and it won an unprecedented four Brit Awards, which is like the English equivalent of Grammys, basically. Best single, best video for Park Life, best album, and best British group. And before this, you know, UK indie bands were basically like fringe acts, and now they were national figures. They basically had swept their version of the Grammy Big Four, really. And in their acceptance speech for Best British Group, Damon Auburn goes on stage and says that he should be sharing this award with another up-and-coming British group, 
Oasis, to which Graham Coxon adds, much love and respect to them. Yes, which, again, I think this is going to define, in a lot of ways, the dynamic between these two bands, because Blur, to me, were not the instigators of this at all. Like, they, in a way, were the victims of it. Like, I don't think that they really saw Oasis as, like, competitors. As you can see from that speech, in a way, I think they looked at them as, like, compatriots. Like, were these young British bands... We're bringing England back to rock and roll at a time where grunge was very dominant. And like you said before, you know, part of what the inspiration was for Blur at the time is that they wanted to assert that England mattered too. Like they didn't want to emulate what the Americans were doing. So they did something that was very much kind of based in their own culture. And I think they looked at Oasis with pride in a way. Like, oh, this is another great British rock band coming along. And of course, Oasis, they put out their debut definitely maybe earlier on in uh, 1994. And if you want more background on the Oasis story, I recommend that you check out our earlier episode on the rivalry between Noel and Liam Gallagher. We get pretty deep into it, uh, you know, their background in that episode. But I think in terms of the dynamic with Blur, it's important to just say quick that Oasis, I think, could be pretty broadly defined as like the blue collar band. You know, they came from more of a working class background. And I think musically, they were just much more of like a meat and potatoes type band, really like kind of like a pub rock band, which is a crazy thing to say about a band that would like pretty quickly go on to play stadiums. But I think that even when they were playing on the biggest stages, the appeal of Oasis was that these were simple songs that you could pretty much memorize after the first time you heard them. And by like the second or third time, you would have your arms around the other lads in your group hoisting pints and <laughs> singing about how you wanted to live forever. Like that was the appeal of Oasis, much less cerebral than Blur. Like Blur was the kind of band, again, this was a band that almost named themselves after a J.D. Salinger story. You know, they were a much more <laughs> literary band and they were much more, I think, concerned with the culture of Britain and, and, and commenting on what was going on in England at the time. And yeah, it just comes from two different worlds. And I think because of those different aesthetics, it just really lined up well. Even though Blur, I don't think, wanted to have a conflict, I think it made it like really attractive for Oasis, in the beginning anyway, to be this underdog band that could kind of just like throw darts at this like very popular but kind of snooty and posh band called Blur. Yeah, I mean, this really... From the jump, these two bands had really distinct lanes, as you were saying, and it kind of sets the groundwork for this Beatles-Stones comparison thing to come. I mean, Oasis were the brash, swaggering, working-class heroes, and Blur were like the Tweety art school kids, and they had a more refined and introverted approach to their music. Oasis are cocky and arrogant. Blur has Alex James, who's this, like, winky, cuddling dude who bounces around like he's in the monkeys. I mean, it, it's you couldn't get more distinct from him than, like, Liam Gallagher, who just goes on stage and scowls with his hands behind his back the whole time. In terms of their music, obviously, Oasis, as you said, made the totally opposite of Blur's kinksish character studies and all the sort of satires found on Park Life. Instead of making an album about the British everyman, which is what Blur did with Park Life, they made an album for the British everyman, like a celebration of the ordinary person. I always felt like you could actually, you feel like you could be an oasis too, where I don't think that's something that you feel with Blur. You know, no one knows what the hell supersonic meant. It just sounded cool. And you mentioned cigarettes and alcohol. The, the song, the Oasis track, it doesn't condone its use, but it's about, in Noel's words, someone who's on the dole who might not have any other pleasures but these. So, you know, he sort of understands where these people are coming from, whereas Blur are just kind of like sketching them. 
Um, style over substance is a bit too reductive for the Oasis versus Blur discussion, but I think it's not far off to describing what, what they have going on. You know, to me, like a handy way to break down the differing worldviews of Blur and Oasis is I think Blur essentially wrote songs from like an insider's point of view of British society, mm. particularly like the country's like trendy and like most posh people. You know, I think of that song Country House, like which is like one of the defining Blur songs of this era, which was about their manager buying this like lavish mansion in the country. And the tone of that song is very much reminiscent of like those Ray Davies songs from the Kinks where it's taking this like knowing comic view of privilege. Whereas Oasis had an outsider's perspective. Like they actually aspired to fame and wealth. When they put out their first record, they didn't know anyone that had a country house. Like they wanted to have a country house. I always think of the first song on Definitely Maybe, Rock and Roll Star, as being like their mission statement. Like for Oasis, being in a band was an escape. And the idea of owning a house in the country, at least at first, it was like this incredible luxury that you could only dream about. You know, like for Blur, it was something you could that you would make fun of almost. But for Oasis, it was like this romantic thing, you know, like we want to be rich so we can be one of those people. So like to me, like that is the core difference between those two groups. And yeah, I mean, the thing that I love about them is that it's, it's this case of the underdog succeeding. I mean, they brought themselves out of this horrible poverty in, in Northern England and became. I mean, it's, it's rare that somebody from the jump sings about wanting to be a rock and roll star on track one of their first album and then does it almost instantly. I mean, that's part of the magic of the Oasis story, I feel like. Oh, absolutely. It's like the greatest called yeah. shot in rock history. Like some of the fiercest feuds, Oasis and Blur, started out actually sharing a healthy mutual respect for one another. I mean, we talked about the the Brit Awards earlier when Blur get up and, and actually praise Oasis when they're accepting the award for Best British Artist in 1994. Uh, 1995, at the NME Awards, uh, Liam Gallagher was actually really humble when uh, Blur walked away with five awards to Oasis's three. He said, you know, I don't think we, Oasis, should have gotten more awards than Blur. Blur are a top band. I mean, from, from Liam Gallagher, that's like incredibly high praise. But their respect started to turn towards resentment after they were lumped together with Blur one too many times in the press under the whole Britpop flag banner, which, which they really were kind of keen to avoid. They kind of thought it was just twee and like like you said i mean they were doing more just rock and roll they weren't really specifically trying to take a stand for british culture in the world or anything and uh their label boss alan mcgee later said that the track uh, digsy's dinner on definitely maybe was actually a piss take to use his words of blur uh and it was just like to show noel basically mocking the whole brit pop sound and showing that he could do it in his sleep it was easy to do and but i just choose not to do it you know, this is going to be something that we speculate in this episode about, about like the legitimacy of this feud, like whether there was genuine animus there or if it was just about basically creating a hype to sell records. And I, mean, I think there's ample evidence that it was overblown, that there really wasn't that much of a conflict. I do think, however, that like Oasis, their main problem with Blur is that at this time, Blur was the bigger band. And Oasis had a lot of ambition, and they wanted to be the biggest band. I think they wanted to be the biggest band in the world, but before you could be the biggest band in the world, you had to be the biggest band in England. And this just strikes me as like a classic case of like, well, if you want to be the boss, you have to take out the boss. And <laughs> it seems like, you know, more than anything, that was what was motivating the trash talking that was going on. Like, we can lower these guys a peg. Also, if you talk about the most famous band in the country – that's going to get you a lot of press attention. It's going to basically be a double win because not only are you making them, you know, blur look bad, but you're also elevating yourself. 
And it seems like that is the strategy, like from this point on with Oasis, like in relation to Blur, that like they're basically just going to like mess with these guys' heads as much as they can until they can overtake them. And it's funny to me, and it may be like a little sad too, that like Blur did not know how to deal with this. I mean, they really, I think, were like mystified by like the attacks that Oasis were going to be launching on them, like from here on out. Oh, yeah, they took it personally. Instead of, like, being able to trash talk back, they took it very personally. Damon was in a Blur documentary, uh, No Distance Left to Run, in, in 2010, and he says, Noel Gallagher used to take the piss out of me constantly, and it really, really hurt at the time. Oasis were like the bullies I had to put up with in the school, which is, you know, sad. I mean, the Gallagher brothers came from Manchester, and they had this, this difficult upbringing and very violent adolescence. And they can't resist, you know, it's it's fight or flight at all times for them. And they can't resist the chance to to just take shots at the leading band. And, you know, Blur coming from, you know, good London families is just the perfect target. Yeah, and that's the thing about this is that, you know, you can look at this scenario and you can go like, yeah, Oasis, they were bullies. Their treatment of, of Blur was unfair. But I think the reason why, like, the trash talking landed is that, what they were saying had a ring of truth to it. There's this great documentary about Britpop that came out in 2003 called, of course, Live Forever, where Noel Gallagher, he's filmed sitting in this like huge opulent house. I assume it's like one of his like 27 houses. And he's like in this like high back chair that looks like a throne. You know, it looks like he's like King Noel sitting in this huge house. And he's talking in this interview about how he used to work on building sites. And which is kind of like a weird image because again, he's like, in the midst of this like huge house and he's talking about his working class background, but he basically says about Blur that like, you know, when, before I was famous, like I used to, you know, work jobs where I would get dirt underneath my fingernails. And I'm not saying that's a badge of honor. It's just the fact, like that's where I come from. And then like in the same interview, I think it's like in the DVD extras, actually, he calls Damon Auburn a condescending cock. That's a quote (laughs) for writing songs about, the encroachment of American culture on England, which was like, again, one of the big themes of those like classic blur records. And uh, Noel's quote is, if you've got the time to worry about American culture creeping into a uh, British society, then I would get a proper fucking job. And then he, of course, calls Damon Auburn a fucking student, which I think he <laughs> like, that's also like what he said about Radiohead and probably like every other like prominent British band of that time. As an Oasis fan, I think this is beautiful, of course. And I am someone who is more apt to sort of like sympathize with the blue collar underdog band. So, you know, I, of course, eat all this stuff up. I will say, like, on some level, I will concede that, like, this is Noel Gallagher, again, being a bit of a bully and maybe even being a hypocrite, you know, talking about having dirt under his fingernails, like when he was a much richer rock star, probably at that point than Damon Alburn was. But again, he's puncturing the pretensions of like smart culture. And I put smart in quotes. And he's doing it in a way that I think resonates with people. And as an American fan, that was one of the things I I connected with. Like I liked the no bullshit attitude of Oasis. And it really connected with me after all those years of like grunge bands basically being miserable about being famous. It's like here was an unpretentious guy from like a really hard rocking band that embraced being famous and made fun of people that like took rock stardom too seriously. I mean, that I think was the appeal of Oasis. I think it was the same interview where he said, yeah, I used to work on building sites that fundamentally makes my soul more pure than blurs, 
Right. Which, you know, I mean, he's kidding and it's funny, but you know, on some level you wonder how much he's actually kidding. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he says it with a wink, but he also used that as a cudgel against Blur, you know, and it really worked. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty brutal shanking. Uh, taking it back to 1995, things start to really get weird between the two bands backstage at the Enemy Awards. Liam starts taking shots at Alex James, who I always thought was kind of like the, the, the cute one, sort of like the, the Davy Jones of Blur, like always sort of like, always winking at the camera. He's like, he's the one that just seems to be so impressed with his own adorability. And I can see how Liam would get really pissed off by that. So he starts uh, shouting various uh, not nice things at uh, Alex James. And uh, Graham Coxon is very drunk and walks up and kisses Liam on the cheek and tries to like s- smooth things over. This doesn't completely boil over into a full out rumble, but you can definitely tell that something's about to happen between these two bands. Yeah, and it goes to another level when uh, Oasis puts out the single, Some Might Say, uh, which is one of the great Oasis songs and also an example of something I was talking about earlier where lyrically Oasis songs are like nonsensical. Like that is one of the most famous nonsensical Oasis songs of all time, talking about there's fishes in the dishes and like that whole thing at the end (laughs) makes no sense. Just terrible lyrics, but just a brilliant rock song and an incredible sort of like T-Rex inspired guitar riff. And Oasis threw a party when that song went to number one, and Damon Alburn decides to show up, I guess is like a sign of goodwill. Like he's trying to support, again, this other, you know, band in the British rock scene. And apparently at the party, you know, Damon Alburn's hanging out, and Liam Gallagher comes up to him and goes right in his face, and he goes, number fucking one, <laughs> which is amazing. That was me trying to do a Liam Gallagher impression. That was good. It was pretty good. And from then, it just, you know, pretty much, like, deteriorated, apparently, uh, there were some unkind things said about Damon Auburn's girlfriend at the time, which was uh, Justine uh, Frischman from the band Elastica. And uh, Damon, I think at this point, he felt like, okay, we're going to have this sort of confrontational relationship, I guess, between our bands. But it seems like from his perspective, he still kind of thought of it as like, well, this is just for fun. Like, I'm not taking it personally. This is just show business. But like, from then on, like, Oasis, like, did take it seriously. Like, they, like, legitimately, like, hated Blur, or at least that was the story anyway, that, like, you know, Blur might have looked at it as a game, but Oasis was going to basically take it forward as a blood sport. And for years, this incident was put forward as the moment when Blur decided to launch their famous chart battle with Oasis. They they were going to release their single Country House and they were checking the release schedules, and Oasis's uh, single roll with it was going to be out, I think, the week before. So they moved their song back, so they'd be released on exactly the same day, so they could duke it out in the charts and see who would be, you know, the preeminent British rock band of the moment. And so for years, this whole number fucking one thing was cited as like why that happened. In later years, many have suspected that there was actually a deeper reason for this feud. And you can kind of get a sense of it in the Live Forever documentary when Damon's asked about the, uh, the feud with Oasis. And he gets really, like, awkward and quiet. And he says, I'm not going to tell you the real reason why. Because, you know, there are other people involved in the real reason why we fell out so publicly. And it was kind of this, like, ominous thing to say. He got very, like, you know, he didn't really want to go there. And, and it kind of seemed like, okay, maybe he just thinks he's too grown up to you know, engage in this kind of, like, feuding now. But then in uh, Daniel Rachel's 2019 oral history of Britpop called Don't Look Back in Anger, Noel speaks of a love triangle between Liam Gallagher and Damon. 
And, you know, as one might expect, he was less than delicate in his phrasing. He said, Liam and Damon were shagging the same bird and there was a lot of (laughs) cocaine involved. And that's where the germ of the feud grew. Uh, and so uh, it hasn't been proven, but it, it, some other people in the in the Oasis and Blur camp have basically uh, backed that up that there was there was a, a love triangle situation going on. Yeah, like Ellen McGee, who was the head of Creation Records, he backed up that version of events. But like Liam Gallagher himself has denied it. He went on Twitter and he vehemently said that this was not true. I love that he referred to Damon Auburn as Dermot Oblong, which is an <laughs> incredible. This of uh, Damon Alburn, but yeah, he basically said like that that that's not true, and he said, and as for you, McGee, you fucking wasp, keep your fucking <laughs> mouth shut about me, or you'll get slapped as you were LGX. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, does that is that actually an admission of guilt? There, I don't know. Is this like a non-denial denial? I mean, he's sort of like. Vehemently, I guess, attacking them, he's not, like... I think he protests a little too much, yeah. Like, he doth protest too much, I'd say. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am... The Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault. 
but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. So who knows the real reason for why this feud is taken off, but it's August 14th, 1995. That's the release date for Blur's next single, Country House, the same day that Oasis was due to release Roll With It, Showdown in the Charts. The British rock community have not seen anything like this since the Beatles versus the Stones. I feel like it should be noted here that like none of this stuff like really mattered in America. I mean, it's kind of amazing to me that like I cared about it at all, like in 1995-96, because, you know, Oasis was building an audience in the United States, but like it didn't really like flourish here until like the spring of 96. That like that's when Wonderwall like really blew up and it became a top 10 hit in America. And like Blur still like wasn't like that big of a deal in America. They they were a cult band, but like you mentioned song two, you know, that didn't come out until like 97 or so. So like all this stuff that we're talking about, it was really kind of focused, you know, in England and, you know, maybe some other places in Europe. You know, the only Americans really who cared about the Oasis versus Blur rivalry in America were like basically just nerds like me who were into <laughs> British bands who were, you know, like buying Supergrass records and Verve records and <laughs> And, you know, maybe even like getting into gay dad and, you know, bands like that. We're the only ones that cared. But, yeah, this was definitely, you know, an outside of America phenomenon at this point. And it is just crazy to reflect on how huge a cultural moment this was in England. It was like a serious cultural event. They were on the cover of the NME, which is like the, the British version of Rolling Stone, basically. A big banner headline, British heavyweight championship with this mock boxing poster featuring the two bands. And there were even, like, spots on the national 10 o'clock news. I mean, it, in the eyes of the British public, this was an all-out cultural war. It was industrial north versus, you know, cultured south. It was rich versus poor, educated versus uneducated, middle class versus working class. As we said earlier, Blur took on the role of the sort of elitist middle-class Londoners, and Oasis appeared to personify the rough-necked working-class northern English folk. And... Oasis dubbed Blur art school wankers and mocked Damon for singing with this like faux Cockney accent that, you know, he had he had no right to sing in because of his posh upbringing. And, you know, Oasis hadn't gone to college. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, they spent time before they were banned as construction workers. And you said it perfectly earlier. They were trying to reject this pretense that they felt that Blur was all about, the sort of art school, slightly bohemian thing that Blur put forward. They wanted to make rock and roll real again. And, you know, Blur, they dismissed them as preening public schoolboys. And the inference being that, like, a life of privilege had left them with no real emotions to call on. And Oasis were, like, real. They had their heart on their sleeve. And they, they could be ill-behaved and laddish, but they were real. And, you know, it's, it's important to mention that at the upstart of this whole feud, Blur were the much, 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 much bigger, better established band. So it did have that underdog thing. And it really added to their whole everyman charm. But then on the flip side, Blur came across as like the kind of nerdy kid who got bullied and Oasis were absolutely the bullies in this scenario. Yeah, and I think you really see like Blur having second thoughts almost immediately that they engaged with this because I think <laughs> they knew that they were in over their heads. Not only because I think Oasis was just better at insulting them. 
like Oasis, you know, Noel and Liam, they are among the greatest insult comics in rock history. So like if you're going to go toe to toe with them with, you know, insults, you're going to lose. Like there's really no one that can keep up with them. But also you had this wave that was starting to happen with Oasis where they were really starting to take over the country. So, you know, they had this, I think, appeal as underdogs, but they were like really becoming the dominant ones like pretty quickly. So it just seemed like at every opportunity, like Oasis would be the ones kind of like seizing control of this rivalry. And like, again, like just their ability to put Blur down is just consistently hilarious. Like one of my favorite put downs of Blur at this time that came from, I think, I think it came from Noel. He referred to them as chimney sweep music, you know, like, <laughs> you, know, think it, you know, like Dick Van Dyke and, and Mary Poppins, like that kind of thing. Which is hilarious, you know. I, I think and again, true. the idea of this, yeah, like this, I, like very sort of like, I don't want to say affected Britishness of their music because they were actually British, but like it just seemed exaggerated to the point of at least in Oasis's eyes as being like comic. It's like give it a rest. Like we know you're from England, you don't have to like lay on this accent that just seems phony at some level, and. uh as Oasis was rising in popularity, it just seemed like these hits that they could take against Blur, it just seemed to be landing more and more and having more of a devastating effect on their popularity. And the more the Blur would kind of go on the news and, and sort of like backpedal a little bit, you know, earn even more wrath from the Gallagher's because there's nothing that they hate more than somebody, you know, if, if they sense fear in you, they're going to go that much harder, I feel like. So that really earned even more disrespect from Oasis. And the funny thing to me about this whole chart battle thing is that all this fuss is over two not that great songs. I don't think either of these songs are like, you know, in any way really notable aside from this feud in either of their canons. I mean, the Blur song Country House sounds kind of like a parody to me of Park Life. And it's, as you said, it's about a man in the city who makes his millions and then retires to the country for this rural life of anti-depression meds and Weight Watchers. And it was poking fun at their former uh, manager. And it boasted this really high-concept video uh, directed by Damien Hirst, the world-famous artist, and it co-starred pretty big English stars at the time, Keith Allen, who's Lily Allen's dad, and uh, Little Britain star Matt Lucas, who were big comedians. So it had these, like, you know, celebrity-driven music videos. And Oasis, on the other hand, didn't bother with things like that. Well, yeah, and, you know, the thing is, though, I, I, I think you're right about, in terms of these two songs, I'll even say, and this is, again, to prove how unbiased I'm going to be in this episode in spite of my pro-Oasis bias. I actually think Country House is maybe a better song than Roll With It. Like, Roll With It is, like, one of the weaker tracks, for sure, on Once a Story, Morning Glory. I mean, even Noel Gallagher himself said, and this is another great quote, he said, it's about fuck all. Is That's what he said about <laughs> Roll With It. So it's basically just, like, a meaningless song that he just knocked out. He also called Country House fucking dog shit. So he thought both songs sucked. <laughs> And, like, I don't think Oasis ever played Roll With It live. It's, like, one of the few songs off that record. And What's the Story of Morning Glory is just, like, a blockbuster album. Most of the songs on that record have become live staples. But, like, Roll With It, in spite of being a single, you know, they've never really played it. And I think that pretty much says it all about how they feel about that song. But, yeah, it's funny that this ended up being, like, the flashpoint, really, between these two bands. And, again, it is still so mind-blowing to think of how big a cultural event this was. The final results were the lead story on the 10 o'clock news in England. I mean, that, that was what they led with. So huge cultural event. 
Oasis were the band that were favored to win. I think there was a bookmaker gave them the odds at six and four in their favor. But ultimately, Blur were victorious. Country House sold, I think, 274,000 copies to uh, roll with its 216,000. And they charted number one and number two, respectively. Uh, some cynics, I have to say, pointed out the fact that Blur released two CD singles. One of them had live tracks from their Mile End show in June of 1995. Uh, in other words, some Oasis fans believe that the election was stolen. Yes. But they were still number one. And Liam, Liam's response was, took them five years to get a number one, took us 12 months. Fair and, point. And, you know, again, when you look at the response to this election that took place, you see where these two groups diverge. Because I think you like when Blur found out that they won, you know, this thing, they kind of had this attitude of like, okay, now we can maybe go back to just being normal here. <laughs> I, like Alex James had this quote where he said, the thing that most people don't understand when they read the papers is that this rivalry is all made up. I know that when I want to hear a good song, I can write one. And when I want to go for a drink, I can call up Liam. There's few people I'd rather drink with than Oasis. So, you know, he's trying to put a good face on it that like, okay, this this is just for publicity. We're actually friends in real life. And it seems like, you know, Blur has felt this way consistently over the years, like when they've been asked about it. There was a quote from Graham Coxon where he looked back on this, you know, roll with it versus country house competition. And he, he really felt that it was like, quote, a hollow, pointless victory. You know, that this was just basically just like a lot of nonsense that was that was ginned up uh, to sell records. And yeah, they won, but he, you know, it doesn't really matter that we won this thing. But Oasis did not feel that way. They felt much different. And I think what's interesting about this is that, like, yeah, Blur, like, you know, they won this competition uh, between these two singles. But it was kind of the beginning of the end of them being the biggest band in England. I mean, because I think pretty quickly, this is where they're kind of crossing, like, their trajectories. And, like, Blur's going down a little bit. And you really see Oasis, again, shooting up into the stratosphere. If Blur in interviews were saying, like, oh, yeah, we didn't really care. We're all friends. Oasis took the total opposite approach. Uh, Liam gives an interview to the NME soon after the uh, the chart battle, and he says, I cared because I want number ones. I think Roll With It is a great song. And he goes, he talks about how he met up with Alex James in a pub soon after all this, and he said, oh, yeah, congratulations on your number one. You know, it's about fucking time. And Alex is trying to be all nice and friendly. He says, oh, yeah, well, you know, both of our songs were shit anyway. And Liam turns on him and says, no, this is where you're wrong, and this is why I fucking hate you and your band. I thought our song was top. So, again, this really gets back to the whole, like, they're not here to play, you know, like, like this faux humility bashful thing. Like, no, we want to be the best fucking band in the world, and if you're in front of us, then get out of the fucking way. Which, you know, I, I appreciate on some level. Noel, actually, was even more blunt about his hatred of Blur. He was giving an interview, I think, to The Observer, and he said, I hate that Alex and Damon. I hope they catch AIDS and die. Yes. For which, which he, he later apologized and downgraded the wish to a bad cold. But, but still, not, not, a, not a nice thing to say. Yeah, this is the most infamous incident, I think, in this rivalry. And I have to say, you know, I love Oasis, but... This is an instance where I feel a little embarrassed to be backing the band that wished AIDS on the other band. I feel like uh, that's not a great look for my boys here, and I wish that wouldn't have happened. Again, showing my lack of bias in this episode, I will call out Oasis for doing that. They shouldn't have done that. Blur, you were in the right. I'm sorry that happened. 
but this all goes back to something I brought up earlier, which is, you know, how genuine really like was this rivalry? And I, I'm, I'm just flashing back to that quote that we were talking about, like where Alex James was saying, you know, I can go to a bar and I can call up Liam Gallagher and I know I can drink with him and it's going to be a good time. And then we have that quote from Liam Gallagher, like where they are actually drinking together and he's talking about how much he hates Alex James. And it's like <laughs> to his like, face, like what's right? Like, are they actually pals or do they actually hate each other? Again, I, I just go back to this idea that like I think Oasis felt genuine competition with them. I think they, they, you know, they wanted to be the biggest band in the world, and they knew that in order to do that, they had to take out Blur first. So it's like, you know, almost like a sporting competition. Like, you have to hate your opponent. And I think that is where the hate was rooted. And maybe, like, if that wasn't in the way, or, like, once, you know, Blur was vanquished, you know, there wasn't going to be that motivation to hate them anymore. So I think that's genuine. But also, at the same time, I think there was... An acknowledgement on Oasis' part that this was going to be good for their career. It was like a win-win. Like, we hate these guys. It's going to motivate us to propel our career forward. And it's also going to give us publicity. You know, the pro wrestling side of Oasis, which I've always loved. And that's another reason why I like them more than Blur. I like their outrageousness. But it, it just seemed like it had a double thing of, like, kind of fueling their fire and also, you know, helping them out on the PR end. You get the impression that... Oasis, all they ever really knew how to do was fight, like just in their interactions with the world. I mean, if you look at their upbringing and just just sort of the violence of their adolescence, it makes total sense. I mean, fight is like sort of the first thing that comes to their mind in any kind of human response. So, yeah, it almost seems like like they would lead with that in any in any interaction. And you notice that once uh, they clearly begin to eclipse Blur as Britain's biggest band and eventually the bigger band in the world. The, the feud between them kind of dissipates. I think that the real sort of defining moment when they overtook Blur was uh, at the Brit Awards in 1996, which was, I believe, a year after uh, Blur had come out ahead and they went up on stage and they thanked Oasis and said, you know, they should be up here with us as best British band. And they, they shared the moment with them. Oasis kind of flipped that on its head. They uh, When they won, I think it was best British band, they get up on stage and they mock Blur by singing from the podium a uh, version of Blur's Park Life that was uh, now titled Shite Life. So very different response to, uh, to getting the glory and becoming the, the number one band. And I feel like this was right when Blur and Oasis released their long players in the fall of 1995. Blur came first with The Great Escape and What's the Story, Morning Glory came in October. The Great Escape came out, hit number one, but it didn't hit the highs that Park Life had. It was generally seen as kind of more of a disappointment from the previous album. Uh, it went triple platinum and got good reviews, but it just completely pales in comparison to the cultural juggernaut that was What's the Story, Morning Glory. I mean, if Blur won the commercial battle with the song chart battle, Oasis won the war. I mean, they rebounded from Roll With It to score this global success that just, you know, almost immediately afterwards with the release of Wonderwall, it just crushed any subsequent single releases from Blur's The Great Escape, and it vaulted them to fame not only in England, but in the United States, which had eluded Blur up to this point. I think that's the crucial difference here, is that Oasis was able to become genuine rock stars in America in a way that Blur never was. And, you know, we're an American podcast, so we have an American-centric view of this whole thing, of course. But I think for, you know, historically, for British bands to make it in America— that's a whole other level of success, you know, going back to the 1960s. Like, if you could come across the pond and have hits in America, that meant that you were really going to be one of the greats. 
And, you know, Blur never was really able to do that. You know, they had Song 2, which is, like, one of the, like, cooler jock jams, I guess, of, like, the last 25 years. <laughs> but, like, in terms of a song like Wonderwall or even, like, you know, songs like Don't Look Back in Anger and Champagne Supernova, which, you know, aren't as big as Wonderwall, but, like, we're still, like, substantial hits and, like, we're played on MTV all the time. Oasis just achieved, like, a level of cultural ubiquity in the States and then, of course, elsewhere in the world that Blur could not compete with, which is why I think, you know, you were saying earlier, like, for a lot of Americans, they don't even think of this as a rivalry. You know, that's the kind of the irony of it for, you know, as much as, like, I've talked about it in my book and, you know, as intensive as it was in, in England, really, like, in, like, terms of, like, the greater world, you know, it's not on the level, certainly, of, like, the Beatles and Stones, like, two bands that, you know, had equally great careers outside of England. This was really like a British phenomenon, you know, these two bands going at it, and then Oasis, of course, they go to America, and then they end up just kind of going off on their own and being much bigger, where it becomes more about the rivalry within the band than it does with this other band. Of course, like with Oasis, you know, what's the story Morning Glory, like really ends up being their peak in America, because after that, they're going to put out Be Here Now, and look, I love Be Here Now. I had a great time talking about that in our Liam versus Noel episode. I'll direct you to that if you want to hear more conversations about that coked out debacle, which is, again, I think kind of a brilliant debacle. But as we look ahead, like to the 2000s and beyonds, it is interesting to compare the trajectories of these bands and especially like Damon Alburn as he becomes a solo artist and really like this like musical renaissance man. Yeah, I mean, Blur kind of collapsed after 2003's Think Tank uh, and they didn't make music together for, I think, almost a decade. But Damon saves his best ideas for his animated, at the time, side project, Gorillaz, which is actually one of my favorite bands. And he scored an international smash with Del the Funky Homo Sapien on the song Clint Eastwood. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, Noel, at a time when Oasis' uh, fortunes as a band are really on the downturn, he couldn't resist twisting the knife a little bit. Noel said that, you know, it's fitting that Damon has ended up in a cartoon band. <laughs> But, you know, I think that it's really, it's incredible how he's able to reinvent himself creatively. I mean, you could be cynical and say he does this by having this sort of revolving door of all these different artists that he brings in from, you know, Snoop Dogg to I think Elton John most recently. It kind of is sort of almost like you could view him as like almost a musical vampire just taking from other people. But I think it's an incredibly creative and innovative approach to, to making music. And Demon Days in 2005... Uh, another international hit, Plastic Beach in 2010. Really, I think he's at a creative high, I, and he definitely hit a, a, a bigger commercial peak in the States than he ever did with Blur. And this is at a time, and again, Oasis is really on the downturn. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you look at Oasis in comparison to Alburn and the aughts and beyond, and, you know, it's very uh, easy to look at Alburn as, again, like this musical renaissance man, that he's someone who I think really proved that like he wasn't just a one-trick pony with Blur, that he could move beyond Britpop and really kind of go into all these different musical arenas uh, that I think felt much more contemporary with the time. Like he felt like he was evolving with like the music scenes of, you know, the 21st century in a way that Oasis really wasn't. Like Oasis, by the aughts, became essentially like a legacy act. Although I will say, again, as an Oasis fanboy, 2005's Don't Believe the Truth one of their great records. And I'll say that, like, I think that album really is like an instance of them being a band in a way that they weren't in the 90s. Because you had, at that time, people like Andy Bell and Gam Archer in the band who were writing songs. Liam, actually, 
was writing songs at this time. Actually, on the previous Oasis record, Heathen Chemistry, he wrote like a really nice ballad called Songbird, which ended up being one of the breakout tracks from that record. And it seemed like Oasis might be the kind of band that like for all of their struggles and interpersonal conflicts that, you know, maybe they could be like the Rolling Stones and just continue on for decades and decades. But of course, that was not to be the case. They ended up imploding in 2009 after a fight between Liam and Noel backstage in Paris. As we discussed in our Liam and Noel episode, there was thrown fruit involved. It was very crazy. (laughs) Uh, Again, please listen to that episode to get into the nitty gritty of that. What is kind of amazing to me and maybe like a little bit sad is that like, you know, Oasis is done. Blur actually ends up coming back and having a resurgence in the 2010s. And of course, Damon Alburn's doing all of his stuff with Gorillaz as well as like various other side projects that he was involved in. You also see like Damon Alburn and Noel Gallagher actually start to be friends publicly, you know, which is like, oh, this is a sign of maturity for these guys. But also for a fan like me, I didn't know how to take that. And I guess I still don't. Yeah. Noel gives an interview in 2011 when he's talking about how we just bumped into Damon at a bar and he said, oh, yeah, I haven't seen this guy in like 15 years. Hey, how you been? That, remember all that shit in the 90s when we were like fighting and slagging <laughs> each other off on the press? Like, that was really weird. Do you want to want to have a bar? I uh, want to have a beer. And just like that, you know, I mean, beer is a hell of a diplomat, I should say. But uh, it kind of made it apparent that like time had healed any of these bruised egos And Noel said, you know, you can, I'll I'll paraphrase slightly what he said, but he said, you know, you can say you respect someone as an artist a thousand times and it'll never get reported, but you call someone a dick, my words, once, you know? So it kind of made it seem like in the 2010s that it was all water under the bridge. And um, Noel actually shared the stage with Damon and Graham Coxon in 2013 at at the Royal Albert Hall for a, a Cancer Trust benefit show. And they played Blur's Tender together. And then he went even on record for the song We Got the Power, a 2017 Gorillaz song. And uh, Damon said in an interview later that year, he said, you know, we don't talk about our past. We talk about our present. I value my friendship with Noel because he's one of the only people who went through what I did in the 90s. And again, I can look at this and, you know, as an adult, I can say, well, this is great. These are people that have like reached middle age and they have achieved a certain I guess, Zen serenity, and they can put aside any kind of conflicts in the past. Damon can get over feeling bullied and, you know, whatever fallout he felt over Noel wishing that he had AIDS. And Noel can, uh, you know, put aside the competition that he had as a younger man and just respect Damon Alburn as an artist. I should think that this is beautiful, and on some level I do. But there's also the part of me that hosts a Rivals podcast, and I like the pettiness And I have to say that I appreciate that Liam Gallagher continues to wave the petty flag in the Oasis versus Blur rivalry. And uh, he was talking about this in uh, 2017. Of course, he was on Twitter. And he says, now that dick out of Blur and the creepy one out of Oasis need to hang their heads in shame as it's no dancing in the streets, as you were. Talking about that Gorilla song, I guess. And of course, also making a reference to the Mick Jagger, David Bowie duet. Dancing in the streets, which I thought was a pretty funny joke. And then he had another tweet where he said, that gobshite out of Blur (laughs) might have turned Noel Gallagher into a massive girl. But believe you me, next time I see him, there's going to be war. And, you know, and Liam went on to say that he felt that, like, this uh, detente, basically, between Damon and Noel killed Britpop. And, like, just took all of the fun and drama and conflict that we all loved back in the 90s and, 
you know, put it away. And, you know, as we covered in our Liam versus Noel episode, I think Liam, he continues to, I guess, keep that pro wrestling aspect of Oasis alive. I think Noel has reached a point in his career and life where maybe he's a little embarrassed by that. He doesn't want to do it anymore. But thank God for Liam Gallagher. He keeps the pro wrestling part of Oasis going and he feeds the petty souls of Oasis fans like me who don't really think that Blur suck, but like we love to say that they suck because it's a lot of fun. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. It came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we've reached the part of our episode where we give the pro side of each part of the rivalry. And look, let's talk about Oasis first. As I've said, I love Oasis. Absolutely one of my favorite bands of the 90s. And there's no question that in relation to Blur, Oasis has had a much bigger impact on the world. I mean, their most popular song, Wonderwall, is among the only songs to have been streamed more than one billion times on Spotify. 
You know, there's just something timelessly rock and roll about their music, whereas Blur to me is much more of a 90s band. You know, they're specific to their era. Plus, there's all the stuff around Oasis that is just so outrageous and fun. I never get sick of reading about it or hearing about it. Oasis forever. I mean, you're right. How can you not love these guys? I mean, their personalities are are just as big as their commercial success. It's just it, they're they're incredible. They are the best insult comics ever. Uh, maybe Blur were smarter, and maybe they were better received by the critics. But Oasis are just so much more fun. And you know, when you want to rock out, what do you reach for? Like you know, end of a century? Like no, you you put on fucking like you know rock and roll star or like even like roll with it. You know, I think people connect to uh, Oasis in a way that emotionally that they never could with Blur. I think that, you know, Oasis, like I was saying earlier, the everyman, they made you believe that we could all be rock and roll stars if we all just had enough swagger and self-belief. And I think they make people feel better, I feel like. So if we go over to the pro-Blur side, look, I've bent over backwards to be magnanimous in this episode (laughs) and, you know, to set aside all my prejudices, you know, in favor of Oasis. So... In the spirit of that, I will say that, you know, Blur, they were not the instigators, really, of this rivalry. They were, I think, in many respects, the victims of it. You know, they were targeted because they had the misfortune of being the more popular band when Oasis came out, and that made them a target. It made them this topic of scorn that Oasis was going to shit on, basically, until Blur got out of the way. (laughs) And that happened to work. But, you know, again, I can say, as an Oasis fan, that they definitely bullied Blur, and that maybe wasn't a cool thing to do. I also think that, you know, you could make a case that Blur was maybe more consistent over their career, and they were undoubtedly more musically diverse. Also, I think Damon Alburn, you know, his career outside of Blur has been very distinguished, and he's done things as an artist, whether it's with Gorillaz or one of his many other bands, that, you know, it's overshadowed really anything that, like, Liam or Noel have done on their own. Uh, So he deserves credit for that. That said, Blur will never matter as much as Oasis. And I'm sorry I have to say that in the pro-Blur part of this episode. But I said a lot of nice things about Blur without... You did, you did. So I I feel like I I needed to put something at the end and say it once more, Oasis forever. Yeah, I have to agree. Just as an American, I always felt like Blur's music wasn't for me. You know, I mean, I appreciate their eclectic, arty nature and when they're at their most kinksy. But uh, yeah, it just was something that it never really resonated with me in an emotional way. But I appreciate the, just how eclectic Damon's career was later on, just from an artistic standpoint. I think his music keeps me interested longer than Oasis's sound, which is generally static. Like if I hear a new Gorillaz album is coming out, I'm really excited to hear it. But if there's a new Liam or Noel solo project, I kind of feel like I know what I'm in for, and the excitement's not totally the same. But again, I'm going to have to echo what you said. Oasis forever. I agree. So if you look at these two bands together, I mean, look, I think it was a really funny and like fun rivalry that made me care about rivalries as a teenager. And it was more fun to love Oasis if I could also hate Blur at the same time. Like it just enhanced (laughs) my appreciation of something that already gave me a lot of joy. So, you know, again, I am Oasis all the way, but I appreciate Blur for being a supporting player really like in this conflict and being, you know, a great topic for some just hilarious Oasis insults. Yeah, as somebody who lived the majority of their life listening to both bands independently without realizing that they were in direct competition with one another, I could say it's pretty easy to enjoy them both separately. I mean, the things that I like and admire about each band sort of stands in contrast to one another. I like 
Oasis's swagger and their pro wrestling level insults. And I like Blur's weird, quirky art school sensibilities. You know, I, I, you, you can like them both. So I think at this point, the only thing that's left to be said is don't look back in anger. <laughs> the most perfect one. Or maybe roll with it. I guess we could say we're rolling with it here at the end of our episode. Thank you again for rolling with us, I guess, in this episode of Rivals. We've had a great time talking about this beef and feud and long-simmering resentment. We'll be back with more in our next episode next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.